daily dose of debate, breaking news, and uncensored views. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day where the highest profile case about January 6th and about the riot in the Capitol building has uh, been resolved. The jury is back. The uh, uh, four leaders of Proud Boys uh, have been found guilty of seditious conspiracy. In other words, they are guilty of conspiring to commit sedition. Uh, they are looking at a maximum of 20 years in prison each. Uh, this is a very, very big deal. What's fascinating to me is the uh, defense for the Proud Boys who have been found guilty was, we're not guilty, Trump is. Uh, they have been attempting to blame the entire uh, alleged crime on Donald J. Trump. We will get to that on the Michael Medved show. There's also an ongoing case in New York. It is a potential murder case. Uh, there is a homeless uh, subway entertainer who uh, was actually put in a chokehold because people on the subway car felt threatened by him and he died and uh, should he be tried for murder that is a big issue in new york uh... we will get to that we will also get to the question of uh, transgender issues uh... there's a celebration in florida where the state legislature including some democrats actually post what is called the nation's toughest anti-trans bill what does that mean exactly well, uh, I'll tell you one thing that is very, very clear. There is a, an element of the trans issue and the question of trans rights that is coming into the Republican primary, the Republican caucuses in Iowa. And when you take a look at what is going on there, it shows you that when it comes to this particular issue, it's not Republicans who are pushing it. It is uh, liberal Democrats. And uh, uh, there will be uh, more on that. We'll also be speaking to uh, a guest who will join us this hour, uh, claiming that right now the signs are very clear that Ukraine is winning the war. And that should not be a long war. It should be a war that will be decided in the next couple of months. And what would that mean to Russia and to the United States? And we'll also be speaking with Dr. Kevin Sabat on pot, uh, fentanyl, and changes in the drug laws, which may make a terrible situation even worse. Uh, we will get to that. Uh, first up, this case in New York City. And... Uh, the case in New York City involves somebody named Jordan Neely, and he was uh, restrained by uh, three individuals in 2023. It was in response to uh, aggressive, threatening behavior. At least that is the claim of eyewitnesses who were there. He also had an active felony assault warrant out. 
in addition to 44 prior arrests. The person who died, uh, Jordan Neely, was not a uh, complete innocent. But to put it in context, uh, this is the way it was treated by NBC's New York affiliate when they uh, reported what had happened on the subway. This is clip eight. The video shows three strap hangers subduing the 30-year-old man after witness Juan Alberto Vasquez says he got on the northbound F train and began acting aggressively, threatening riders. Law enforcement sources with knowledge of the case confirm his account, saying according to a witness, the man began shouting, quote, I want food. I'm not taking no for an answer. I'm ready to go back to jail, and I'll hurt anyone on this train. The man got on the subway car and began to say a somewhat aggressive speech, saying that he was hungry, he was thirsty, and he didn't care about anything. He didn't care about going to jail, that he didn't care that he gets a big life sentence, and it doesn't matter if he died. Vasquez says he was scared and believes others on the train were too. That's when he says a 24-year-old rider came up behind the man and put him in a chokehold, holding him there on the ground. Two other men standing over them also helped subdue the man. Okay, the chief um, uh, individual who came forward to subdue the crazed homeless Michael Jackson impersonator, that is the way it goes, uh, the, uh, the person who subdued him was, according to some reports at least, this has not been confirmed, he has not been identified, but he uh, is a Marine. And uh, he knew how to administer a chokehold and to stop uh, Jordan Neely from intimidating the other passengers on the F train. And uh, none of the facts in this case, including the idea of 44 prior arrests to uh, this homeless, quote, Michael Jackson impersonator. It's not that he did it professionally. It's just what he did when he got on the trains. He moonwalked in addition to screaming and crying and saying he didn't mind if he died, he didn't mind if he was put in jail. Uh, the uh, There was a very controversial, well, you can even talk about it in a negative sense, it is a tweet uh, of the day. Turn the page now to the Internet. I mean, wow, what a great, smart tweet. Change his password so he no longer has access to his Twitter feed. Did you send the tweet? I did not send that tweet. My system was hacked. I was pranked. Donald Trump hasn't tweeted at us once, and I'm starting to get worried about him. So we have a new tweet. All right. Can I do the honors? Stand by. Tweet alert. Okay, this is uh, the way that AOC tweeted. This is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Democratic Congresswoman from the Bronx. Uh, she wrote, Jordan Neely was murdered. But because Jordan was houseless and crying for food in a time when the city is raising rents and stripping services to militarize itself, while many in power demonize the poor, the murderer gets protected with passive headlines and no charges. It's disgusting. Uh, is it so disgusting? Uh, this is the way it's covered in the New York Times, where they clearly are more sympathetic to the uh, to Jordan Neely, to the homeless man's point of view. Uh, New York Times says chokehold death of man on New York City subway is ruled a homicide. 
And then they write that the death of a man who was placed in a chokehold while riding a New York City subway on Monday was ruled a homicide, the city's medical examiner confirmed on Wednesday evening, last night. The uh, man who died, Jordan Neely, was a homeless man who had been screaming at passengers. He died from compression to his neck as a result of the chokehold, according to uh, Julie uh, Boulder, or Bolker, who is a spokeswoman for the medical examiner. The killing on an F train in Manhattan led to investigations. So where do we come out on this? And what does the mayor of New York, a former police lieutenant, Eric Adams, have to say? And the governor of New York, who says something very different, will... Michael Medved show talking about the sad story of Jordan Neely, a 40-year-old uh, chronically homeless, uh, chronic, chronically offending uh, resident of the streets of New York. Uh, Newsweek is reporting that a spokesperson for the New York City Police Department uh, confirmed the Jordan Neely's record includes 42 prior arrests dating between... 2013 and 2021. Uh, that's why I have five arrests every year in those years. Uh, I mean, just do the math quickly. They include four for assault and others for transit fraud and criminal trespass. I think transit fraud is where you, you, you jump over, you don't pay to, to go on the subway. Uh, in, in Seattle, of course, with the light rail, they don't enforce that. You can just wander on any time you want to use our glorious light rail. Uh, but uh, in New York, they, uh, they do encourage people to pay for the subway. Uh, they include four for assault, others for transit fraud and criminal trespass. At the time of his death, Neely had one active warrant for assault in connection with a 2021 incident. And uh, the uh, uh, the mayor of New York, Eric Adams, uh, actually was concerned about the way that uh, that Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, his fellow Democrat, by the way, uh, what she had to say about this when she said he was killed for no reason, and his family demands justice, and uh, etc. Uh, this is the uh, former cop, uh, police lieutenant, mayor of New York City, Eric Adams on CNN 13. Well, uh, both the Congress, congr Congresswoman and uh, the controller, uh, the controller is a citywide leader. And I don't think that's very responsible at the time where we're still investigating the situation. Let's let the DA uh, conduct his investigation with the law enforcement officials. Uh, to really interfere with that is not the right thing to do, and I'm going to be responsible and allow them to do their job and allow them to determine exactly what happened here. Okay, look, that, it seems to me, is appropriate. He uh, then went on uh, 
to uh, talk about the 24-year-old, unidentified at the moment. He will be identified, I'm sure. But the 24-year-old who is associated with the Marine Corps, whether he is actually a Marine or people say former Marine, but you never are a former Marine. You're always a Marine if you're a Marine. In any event, uh, when it comes to defending him, and all of a sudden you're in a subway car, and there are all kinds of people in a subway car. Maybe one of the people's my daughter. Uh, maybe one of the people is your relative or small children or uh, elderly, very vulnerable people. And there's a guy on the car who's screaming and shouting, and he was apparently screaming and shouting. There's even video of it. And uh, people who were bystanders were scared because he was jumping around in the subway car and he seemed to be threatening other people. So somebody stepped forward, grabbed him, held him down in a chokehold. Apparently there were other people who came and helped. And there does not appear to have been any intention to do permanent harm to the individual who knows what kind of drugs the individual was on. But, uh, of course, they introduce a racial element because apparently the the main restrainer for Jordan Neely was white and Jordan Neely is black. And uh, that, uh, that led uh, the black... Uh, uh, former police officer, mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, to say this about the whole situation that was generated on the F train in New York. This is a clip 12. Each situation is different. And how a passenger, uh, we have so many cases where passengers assist of, of the riders, uh, and we don't know exactly what happened here until the investigation is thorough. And each situation is different. I was a former transit police officer, and I responded to many jobs where you had a passenger assisted someone. And so we cannot just blankly say, blankly say what a passenger should or should not do in a situation like that. We should allow the investigation to take its course. Okay. Uh, this all sounds very reasonable on the part of Mayor Adams, not so much the governor of New York, Kathy Hochul, who has just been surviving a scandal with her own chief aide, who isn't even in New York, but uh, had uh, a lot of negatives about him. They have now since separated. But uh, Governor Hochul issued a statement, which is just outrageous, saying that he was killed not for being crazed, uh, probably influenced by uh, drugs of some kind. That is just a strong guess. And uh, somebody with a history of uh, 42, at least, uh, recent arrests, uh, she claims he was killed for being a passenger on our subway. Listen to the governor. This is clip 11. Do you want to acknowledge how horrific it was to view a video of Jordan Neely being killed uh, for being a passenger on our subway trains? And so our hearts go out to his families. I'm really pleased that the district attorney is looking into this matter. As I said, there had to be consequences. And so we'll see how this unfolds. But uh, his family deserves justice. Okay. Uh, the uh, New York Times writes, witnesses said that Mr. Neely was acting in a hostile and erratic manner. That's a quote. 
toward other passengers on the train. Uh, Juan Alberto Vasquez, a freelance journalist who was riding on the train and who shot the video, said the victim was yelling about being hungry and thirsty. I don't mind going to jail and getting life in prison, Mr. Vasquez recalled him saying. I'm ready to die. That kind of language might have led passengers to believe Mr. Neely was going to do something violent, said Todd Spodek, a criminal defense uh, lawyer. The case raises questions about how people respond to the actions of, quote, the poor, the unhoused, and most especially those perceived to be suffering from mental illness, said uh, Christopher Fee, an English professor at Gettysburg College who teaches about homelessness. These bystanders may have felt threatened by the victim, but they were not in fact attacked by him, he said. Still, they watched him die. Uh, the idea that there was a plan to, quote, kill him rather than simply to restrain him uh, seems to me highly dubious. I'll tell you what else has been dubious. The uh, Kremlin claim that America was involved in that uh, alleged plot to uh, rub out uh, Vladimir Putin. What is the substance and what is the fate of the war? We'll be talking to somebody who thinks he knows. Coming up on The Medved Show. Michael Medved show, uh, they are coming up to a big day in Russia. Uh, the big day is Victory Day. That's May 9th. They have that gigantic military parade. And the claim by the Kremlin yesterday was that uh, the Ukrainians, and now they've expanded it, they say the Ukrainians and the Americans had a plot to uh, murder Vladimir Putin before Victory Day. And uh, they sent two drones over the Kremlin. So what is really going on and what is the fate of the war and what do the signs point to in terms of when this war comes to an end? Uh, one of the more informed people on these subjects is Dalibar Rohak, who is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studies European political and economic trends. He is also concurrently a research associate at the Wilfried Martens Center for European Studies in Brussels, and he's also a fellow at Anglo-American University in Prague. Uh, Mr. Rohawk, thank you very much for joining us. I appreciated your column yesterday in the New York Post. These signs point to Ukrainian victory sooner than critics think. Uh, first of all, do the signs point to any evidence of American or Ukrainian involvement in the uh, two drones that were shot down over the Kremlin? Well, first of all, it's great to be with you. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, I don't think we really have much hard evidence to, to go by in assessing what happened over the Kremlin uh, the, the night two, 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 two days ago. It is very unlikely that this would be a Ukrainian plot to assassinate Vladimir Putin. The sort of risks and benefits 
of such an operation just don't make sense. And from what we know about um, the level of sort of professionalism and and attention to detail of Ukrainian intelligence services, this looked like an incredibly clumsily executed operation. It's pretty obvious that the Biden administration or, or Western allies were not behind this operation either. I mean, that would contradict everything we we know about about how the U.S. has been uh, conducting itself uh, during this war. It is possible that it's a, some kind of an improvised attack by the Ukrainians or by uh, sort of sabotage groups within Russia. We've seen many instances of fires and and sort of smaller acts of sabotage across Russia in recent months. So that could fit into that pattern. But it could also be a false flag operation by the Kremlin, which could have many different purposes. It could serve the purpose of dividing the West, because many Western allies, particularly Europeans, are very queasy about uh, their military equipment being used against Russia within Russia on Russian territory. And Ukrainians have been very adamant about that not being the case. And if indeed uh, Russians could point to an instance of Western uh, military equipment being used, you know, against the Kremlin, that could that could drive a dividing line across across the alliance. It could serve a purpose of mobilizing Russians for an attack, for, for another wave of mobilization and, and sort of providing support for the war. Or finally, it could also provide a justification for Putin's absence from the May 9th parade, if that indeed is the, is the case. We've already seen a number of Russian cities cancel their own parade, a number of regions scaling down the, the, the celebrations, which are very central to, to, to Russia's self-understanding as a, as, a, as, a, as a political nation. And it's possible that, that maybe that's something that's in the, in the cards as well, that, that Putin will simply not show up. You say in your piece in the New York Post, uh, there are various signs that you point to as indications that the Russian military effort is falling apart and that Ukrainian victory is closer and more plausible than most people accept. What are some of those signs? I think the central sign is really the failure of Russian armed forces to make any significant territorial gains within Ukraine over the past months. So really since the collapse of the first offensive towards, uh, towards Kiev uh, in, in spring last year, uh, the initiative has been largely in the hands of the Ukrainians. And it's not the case that the Russians wouldn't have been trying to regain territory. I mean, the Battle of Bakhmut, which has been going on for over 10 months now, uh, resulted in, in really minuscule territorial gains by the Russians at an incredible human toll. So um, the U.S. Department of Defense speaks of, of possibly 100,000 casualties, out of whom uh, 20,000 would be dead just since January this year. So it really is a meat grinder through which uh, the Ukrainians have very successfully pushed the Russian forces. We have seen a great deal of attrition when it came, comes to, to sort of military equipment on the Russian side, uh, constant changes in command and, uh, and, 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 and a really sort of lack of, 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 of professionalism in the, in, the, in the conduct of these, of these operations. And if you add on top of that uh, the flow, steady flow of new equipment, Western grade armor, tanks uh, to Ukraine, uh, I mean, it is you know, very likely 
that the Ukrainians in the coming weeks will make significant territorial gains. I don't think they'll you know, really take the whole, whole territory in one go, uh, but it is quite possible that in the coming weeks and months um, the situation on the battlefield for the Russians will become simply unsustainable. And uh, you suggest in your piece that that could be a threat not only to the Russian military, but to the survival of the Putin regime. Uh, I think that's, 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 that's quite possible. I mean, you know, it's very, I don't have a crystal ball. It is very, it, it is very plausible that, 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 that the regime will sort of hang on even after that military defeat. Uh, but the, the legitimacy uh, of, 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 of the, that regime will be terribly damaged by, by, by the fact that Putin launched this war um, on the very dubious assumptions about the relative strength of the two militaries, about Ukrainians' willingness to, to defend themselves. And, and if that war fails, uh, it is quite possible that, 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 that the elites will turn on each other. And we already see a lot of infighting uh, between the Ministry of Defense and the Wagner Group uh, and, and, and various, various other factions. Obviously, where it goes from here is very difficult to predict, uh, but a, a resolute Russian defeat in Ukraine, I think, is, is the uh, necessary condition for, for a, a change of regime in, in, in Moscow. Well, God willing. Uh, have you been surprised, frankly, at the fact that NATO has been able to hang together so effectively, at least so far? I think the, um, um, the, the, the Western unity has really been a, a surprise to, to many, not least to Vladimir Putin himself, you know, who justified the invasion on the pretext of a, of a, of a prospect of Ukraine joining NATO. And in fact, the only thing that, that the invasion has achieved thus far was, was you know, the entry of Finland into, into NATO, effectively extending uh, the border that Russia shares with the alliance and really strengthening, strengthening NATO significantly, given, given the uh, fairly strong state of, of Finnish um, defense force and, 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 and military services more, more broadly. Uh, but this war hasn't been won yet, so so I think there'll be time for self-congratulation. But the time is is not quite yet. I think there still is a long, long road ahead for for NATO, for the United States, and for the Ukrainians, most importantly, in reestablishing control over their territory. And I think much more needs to be done in terms of supplying Ukrainians with what they need to finish the job. Uh, that's, this is uh, Dalibor Rohak, uh, Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and also a research associate at the Wilfrid Martin Center for European Studies and a fellow at Anglo-American University in Prague. I, I wish you uh, continued success and hope to hear your voice again. And I, one can only hope with more encouraging news. Uh, when we come back... Uh, not such encouraging news domestically. Daily Dose of Debate. It's the Michael Mendez Show.
And on the Michael Medved Show, we just had the privilege of speaking to Dolly Barrohawk of uh, the American Enterprise Institute. And uh, there's a new package of supplies of aid, of weapons, that are going from the United States to the Ukraine. Uh, the package includes uh, Hydra 70 rockets, which are unguided rockets that are fired from aircraft. Uh, this is the 37th package of Pentagon stocks to go to Ukraine since the war began in February of last year. And uh, the U.S. is sending in additional military aid $300 million, including artillery rounds, howitzers, air-to-ground rockets, and ammunition in Ukraine. By the way, another huge package of weapons and armaments from one of our most stalwart NATO allies, Poland. And Poland is actually spending now, according to some estimates, a higher percentage of their gross domestic product on military supplies and support for Ukraine than the United States. And uh, God bless the Poles for what uh, they are doing. And by the way, when you're looking at this, I just had a thought, and it's, it's a radical thought and a random thought. But $300 million in additional military aid to Ukraine, uh, put that in the context of the dispute and the trial that we all followed between Fox News and uh, Dominion uh, Software. And Fox ended up settling for $787.5 million, so more than twice as much money went from Fox to Dominion as is going from the U.S. to Ukraine in this new package. Concerning the alleged attempt to assassinate Vladimir Putin, which no serious observers who are not in the Kremlin payroll are uh, responsible for. I mean, uh, when you're talking about responsible uh, Kremlin people, uh, one of the most irresponsible is someone with a name similar to mine. Uh, his name is Dmitry Medved. Uh, he's he's Medvedev, um, and but it's the same back Ukrainian name. Uh, he he's called upon, hinted that uh, with the attempt to assassinate Putin, there ought to be retaliation by the Russians with attempts to assassinate Western leaders. Oh, terrific. Uh, John Kirby, spokesperson for the National Security Council, was asked on CNN about the uh, alleged participation of the United States in this effort to assassinate Vladimir Putin. Here's what he had to say, clip six. And what's your response to Russia claiming that it's actually Washington who is behind this drone attack, saying essentially they tell Kiev what to do? Uh, there's a word that comes to mind that I'm obviously not uh, not appropriate to use on national TV. I would just tell you Mr. Peskov's lying. I mean, that's obviously it's a ludicrous claim. The United States had nothing to do with this. We don't even know exactly what happened here, uh, Caitlin, but I can assure you the United States had, had no role in it whatsoever. And, and again, just to be clear, and I think you covered this at the beginning, that we neither encourage nor do we enable Ukraine to strike outside Ukraine's borders. Okay, that's uh, very clear. And within our own borders, there is a weird war going on about handling that 
that incredibly tiny percentage of the American population that identifies as transgendered, non-binary. There was an, an event at the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, and the background here is uh, there was a uh, black member of the transgendered community whose name was Banco Brown, who was shot and killed. He was in the midst of uh, trying to steal from a local Walgreens, and he got into a scuffle with one of the security guards, and in any event, he died. And a, a trans activist uh, actually spoke about his death very emotionally, very emotionally. You'll hear it. Clip 10. Okay, they uh, moved on to the next speaker. Uh, she she introduced her her scream uh, with also a, a little bit of edge of hysteria. Do you have that introduction there, Jeremy? Emotion about that. Uh, look, one of these things. I know there are a lot of people who hear about the arguments and the various rules about the use of bathrooms and uh, access to sports teams and uh, whether or not uh, teachers, if they begin to um, use different pronouns or use different names, whether they should have an obligation to tell parents, which of course it seems to me, of course they should. And uh, there's so many people who look at this particular issue and they think, well, really, do we have to go through this? Does this have to be a huge battle, a, a huge war here? And there's a piece about this becoming an issue in the Iowa uh Republican caucuses, which are still, which Republicans are still leading off the uh, election and the selection of a nominee in the state of Iowa. And there is an Iowa school board where Mike Pence has spoken out, Tim Scott has spoken out, uh, and, and uh, I believe that uh, Ron DeSantis has spoken out. And what is the issue? Uh, the issue is, quote, do you favor or oppose requiring schools to notify parents if their child uses a different name or gender identity at school? Now, wouldn't you think that this should not be a, a genuine issue? That you would normally, if you were a teacher, if, if your child changed his or her name 
and you were all of a sudden using a different name to address a child that a parent should know about it? Uh, what if they change the last name? And it's not gender-related. It, it just seems to me such an obvious question. But uh, there's a school district called uh, the Linmar Community School District in Iowa, which uh, last year the school board approved rules giving students in grades 7 or higher the ability to request a gender support plan that called for teachers and peers to address them by a new name and with new pronouns without any parental notification. It also allowed students to use locker rooms and bathrooms corresponding to their preferred gender identity. Where, honest to God, the, the easiest way to settle that issue is to have uh, a, a basically gender-free bathrooms, to have at least some bathrooms available to people where you don't need to, uh, uh, to, to actually identify as one gender or another. It's open to all. Okay, and if you have that... And yet, if for those who prefer to go to a male-only bathroom or go prepared to go to a female-only bathroom, for God's sake, that we should be having this kind of screaming. And I understand the screaming. She was mourning the death of Banco Brown and all of that. But the hysteria over this is, is truly bizarre. The uh, question that I, I put to you was actually a question in a Wall Street Journal poll nationwide. Uh, do you favor or oppose requiring schools to notify parents if their child uses a different name or gender identity at school? 65% of Americans think that, yes, you should notify parents. 27% disagree. That's awfully close to a commanding, meaningful consensus. Don't you think that we could move on to other subjects? in this greatest nation on God's green earth.